EDC Unlocked, founder of Urban EDC Supply, Yong Su Chung. He reveals the struggles at the beginning of the brand. In order to kind of differentiate ourselves a little bit, we started working with makers who had a strong following. In the beginning, you know, I was getting rejected left and right. And the opportunities that came with these challenges. With every challenge comes like a really, on the flip side, there's always opportunity. Finding that opportunity, but also like being brave enough, I guess, to take advantage of that. And we discuss the role of community in their continued success. It's all about like making sure that what we do is reflective of what our community wants. And so that's like a really positive loop because we do something for the community, they love it. And then they come back by our stuff and, and it's like a loop where it's like, okay, we keep doing that. Hey guys, we came up with the idea for EDC Unlocked because we felt there wasn't anything out there that gave the EDC community the opportunity to hear the stories behind big names and brands in the space, whilst also giving them the chance to ask the questions that they've always wanted to ask. For now, this is a limited mini-series, but if you guys want more, then we would love to come back with another series. And so if you do genuinely like the show, then please follow, subscribe. And if you're feeling extra generous, leave us a short review. This 20 seconds of your time really makes such a huge difference and we'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get into the episode. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to EDC Unlocked by Home and Hadfield. Today, I'm really excited to have on the show Yong Su Chung, the founder of Urban EDC Supply. How are you doing, man? I am fantastic, Phil. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We finally got there. We've had some technical difficulties this morning, but we're, we're making it work. So thank you for sticking around and bearing with us. No problem, man. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Um, well, look, you've created a brand and a community, actually, that I personally, and I know my business partner, Ian, we really look up to you guys, like what you've done in the space and also that you're just doing something very unique. You're not just creating like another product brand. You're doing something unique and you're collaborating with other brands at the same time. So personally, I've been really excited to, to speak to you and also uh, get the questions from our audience. And there's a lot of them, but I'm going to be a bit selfish. I'm going to ask my questions first, because uh, I think that's the most important thing. Uh, but we will definitely get to the audience questions because there's a lot of them. But if we could go back before you started the brand, like I've looked into your kind of history, it looks like you're, you were destined to be an entrepreneur always, and maybe you ha- always had that in you. But what were you doing before you started the brand? And had you always had that in you that you knew you wanted to start a business? Yeah, so I always knew that I was going to start some kind of business. And so, you know, what's funny is I when I was in college, this is around 2007, 2008, I was going in on the finance path. So at that time, everyone was going into investment banking and consulting. And that's kind of where my mind was at. And so I was on the finance track. You know, I had an internship at Merrill Lynch. I had an internship at Goldman Sachs. And I thought that I was going to eventually start a hedge fund. So that was the path that I had set for myself. And I know it sounds kind of crazy now. (laughs) But that's the path that I thought that I, I, I would be on. But then what happened was when I was in New York City, because I, I worked on Wall Street for about two years after graduating from college, um, I started getting more interested in technologies and startups in general. And I realized that in order for me to surround myself with the people that I, I, I wanted to be around, I 
had to move to San Francisco because there was not a lot of startup activity going on in, in New York City at the time. This is around 2010. And so I decided to buy a one-way ticket, move to San Francisco. You know, I was actually, I only knew two people, one high school friend and one college friend. And I slept on that air mattress for three months. And I don't know if you ever have done that, Phil, but you, your back is just is crushed after you know, probably the first week or so. So yeah, I mean, it, it was it was rough times. But I, luckily, I found a job at a startup. And I found an apartment kind of around the, around the same time. And then I was doing the whole startup thing for a while. I actually found myself working at a blockchain company as a software engineer in 2014. So pretty early in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was there for a year and a half. But then I realized that I wasn't really... There came a time when the regulations for financial stuff was blocking our progress. And just knowing myself, I'm always the type of person that needs to move forward. Like, I guess I have this thing inside me where I, I need to see progress. And so when that was stifled, I decided it was time. And so, you know, I always knew I was going to start my own company one day. And, you know, back in college, I thought I was going to be a hedge fund. But, you know, I was just kind of more into these little, you know, things, small things that fit in your pocket. And uh, that happened to be EDC gear. And so I thought that that would be a nice avenue for me to kind of explore my my own interests. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're two very different paths that you could have gone on. Um, and the world, so I think you must have been going to university similar time to us. I graduated in, in 2007. And so, the world is a very different place back then in terms of like e-commerce. Uh, and I, yeah, I imagine like was EDC, the, the, the term EDC and people have actually asked about that. Like, where did you get your passion from EDC? What does it mean to you? Like, where did you kind of like first realize that, okay, this is a thing, but also I've realized that other people, it's a thing for other people as well. And so there's a bit of a community there. Like when did it start to mean something to you? Yeah. So when, I launched Urbanity Studio. This is in October 2015. People were starting to, there was still a community, like Instagram was the largest, you know, hangout for EDC people. And they were posting pocket dumps. You know, people were asking, hey, where can I get that pen or where can I get that knife? That was already happening. Obviously, it was very early. So there wasn't really a big, like, I guess, a shop dedicated to EDC. And it was more like people were finding stuff off of Amazon or they were trying to follow these makers that were um, just making stuff in their garage and selling like 10 pieces at a time. And so that was the culture of EDC back then. And honestly, it still kind of is, although it's evolved a little bit. But the community wasn't, you know, people would hang out during the shows. So a lot of these live shows, people will go and meet up and stuff. And I feel like that's kind of where people congregated, but there wasn't really a place uh, online that was, you know, people to connect and, and all that. So, yeah, the community was de- definitely, definitely a lot. Um, I guess it was just early, right? The community development was early. And so now I feel like in a strange way, there's almost like too many areas where people can hang out. So it's kind of been saturated. And so it's been really interesting to see how that has evolved. But I think the core core mission is all the same, which is, you know, people gather around the gear that they love and find out the stories behind why they carry certain things that they carry. And like the stories of the makers too are fascinating. Like, how did you get into making, you know, this 
random like pocket top, right? It's just fascinating to hear the stories behind how people discover ADC and the people that kind of connect and, and come together. Yeah, totally. Um, did you make the decision from the beginning that you were going to do like collabs with other brands and there was going to be limited edition? Because that in itself has become a lot more popular these days. A lot more brands are doing it, but it wasn't really much of a thing back in 2015. Was that a decision from the start or is that something you kind of transitioned to do after a while? Yeah. So initially when we launched, we were just another like a retailer. So I would reach out to brands and we would just be a wholesale account for them. Mm. And so that was at the time that was enough to build a brand. But then as the market evolved, the market actually went from, uh, you know, essentially like we were the only EDC shop that existed, but then th there were other players that were popping up. And so in order to kind of differentiate ourselves a little bit, we started working with makers who had a strong following and, you know, our brand had built up to that point where we had a little bit of leverage in terms of, uh, you know, our brand reputation. So these makers wanted to be associated with us. And so I mean, in the beginning, you know, I, I was getting rejected left and right. I mean, I remember as one, one companies in particular, I won't name them, but they, I wanted to carry their stuff and, um, I sent them emails and follow-ups and all that stuff. They basically said, um, we don't want to compete with our own online sales. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and that totally makes sense from that perspective. But then a couple years later, they came back, but then by that point, our strategy had already shifted, you know? So we were not doing the retailing stuff as much. We we're working more with the makers and collaborations. Mm -hmm. So we actually essentially rejected them. But it's interesting how the market moved. And so when the market started to move in that direction, we started working with makers on limited drops. Um, and then these collaborations are kind of how we grew. That was kind of our biggest growth lever, I would say, over the years. And then now we're actually shifting into creating our own products and our own productions. And so that's actually the next wave that we've been transitioning into. And I think that we'll do more of that in the future. Um, we'll still do collaborations with makers, especially the ones that have very big followings and, and passionate audiences. But we're kind of shifting more towards our own production stuff now because that's kind of where the market has moved. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, we'll see where it goes from here. But yeah, we've just been adapting to what the market has given us. Did it feel pretty good when that brand came back after two years and said, <laughs> I want to work, work with you now. It did. It did feel good. But, um, you, you know, I always like to keep things kind of like, I don't want to go personal. So, I, I, yeah. you know, if the strategy made sense, then maybe, you know, we would have worked it in somehow. But the strategy has shifted. So, you know, we were like, okay, no, uh, no, thanks. But yeah, it, it, did, it did for a split second feel pretty good there. Well, I think <laughs> it's probably more just as a reflection of like how you've uh, yeah, how you've moved on really and how you progressed more than anything in that time and just that you've evolved even out of the relationship you probably would have killed to have at that time. Um, so you set this business up on your own. You didn't have a co-founder? That's correct, yeah. I have got like an unbelievable amount of respect for anyone who who can do that. Like Ian and I, my business partner, it's like we've known each other since we were 13 and we, it's almost like I've got a second significant other now and like there's a there's a whole and, and the, there's negatives that come with that for sure but the big positive is 
the like emotional support we give to each other when going through like really difficult times, when going through making big decisions and big calls on the business that could shift the business. Like even the small calls sometimes can shift the business in such a big way that you didn't even realize. How do you deal with that at, at those kind of like big times where you've got to make a big call? Do you find that, is that something that's come natural to you? Is that something you've like built up over time? Do you feel like, is there at times, do you feel like you could do with maybe someone else in the trenches with you? Yeah, this is a great question. So I've always had like my decision-making muscles have always been pretty strong. And I guess one of my core strengths is my intuition and kind of seeing trends and being able to get be ahead of the curve before we're too late. So in terms of that aspect, I felt like I was in pretty good shape. So I didn't need to necessarily, you know, have someone else to bounce ideas off of. The second part to this is the emotional aspect of it, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sometimes I, you know, I wish I had someone to share the wins and losses. But now I just, I, I think I do that with my team now. So I have my team and, you know, we kind of feel the ups and downs ourselves. And that has kind of filled that void a little bit. Although it's not the same, obviously, because like, you know, I'm their boss and like no one really wants to hang out with their bosses. <laughs> and uh, and so I really, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because when you're working at a big company, like you have a lot of colleagues, you can go grab, you know, drinks at, you know, after hours or whatever and just you know, trash talk all your coworkers, whatever. But, uh, but no, you don't have that here. Like it's, it's me. And then like everyone else is kind of, like, it's like, you know, I don't have that. It's just like, I'm at pretty much at, at the top or whatever. Right. So yeah. uh, it's challenging in that respect. But yeah, I mean, I, I felt like I've matured a lot over the years. And uh, now I'm in a place where, you know, my job is no longer about, I mean, of course, it's bringing the best gear out there for all of our customers, but it's actually now I, I want to develop and empower my team to be able to take ownership of the company and drive it forward. And so that's been my focus is I've actually kind of trying to take more of a you know backseat a little bit to try to get my team developed a little further. And so that's been kind of the next phase of development for me personally as a leader. Yeah. No, awesome. Yeah. As I said, huge respect to anyone kind of, I think particularly in the beginning parts of it as well, because then that's when you're not really making any money right at the beginning. Well, I don't know about you guys, but like really trying to um, actually like justify it to yourself when you've got all of these outsider opinions, maybe friends and and family that are expecting you to start a hedge fund. And then you've started this crazy EDC company instead. Um, has there ever been times where, you've almost been like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like I'm close to quitting or have, has there always just been uh, though that just overwhelming positive belief that, you know, things will improve even when it is difficult. The, the way that I look at this is, you know, there's always going to be ups and downs and it's important to kind of keep a level head across the entire spectrum of both ups and downs. And so whenever something bad happens, then what I always try to do is because there's kind of a, there's a couple of ways to react to that. One is, you know, you can be fearful and you can be like, oh my God, what's happening? Like, you know, I'm scared. Right. And that's a very natural feeling. Um, but then the second part to that is, okay, you get over that feeling and then you say, 
this could be one of the best opportunities ever. Yeah. And so when you look at that change in, in market or whatever is happening, you can interpret that as an opportunity instead of something to be fearful of. And I feel like that has really, when I had that mind shift, it really opened up a lot of doors. You know, for example, like during COVID, you know, March 2020, which is right around when the lockdown happened, we had we, we were forced to move out of our office within one month and find another place. And this is during a time when literally the government was like, you can't leave your houses. <laughs> and um, it was really awkward because we had to find a new new place and no one knew what was happening you know this is literally like lockdown first couple weeks and so there's a lot of uncertainty but the best part of that was that we locked down a lease that was so underpriced that it was i mean it was a really good deal and so basically i guess with every challenge comes like a really on the flip side there's always opportunity it's about finding that opportunity but also like being brave enough, I guess, to take advantage of that. Because, I mean, you could easily just be like, oh, man, the world is coming apart. You know, we better shrink or we better do whatever. But if you notice and kind of stay calm and then you can make a decision like, actually, this might be a really good time to lock in that lease or whatever it is. So you, you got to really these these downturns as more like opportunities versus like challenges, I would say. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I feel like, because I was previously in uh, sales, I used to work in sales for quite a while before we did this. And I think sales prepares you like really well, just because uh, you can't, with all the good stuff that happens, you have to have the bad stuff. And so th it's impossible to go through life without, if you, tr if you go through life trying to avoid all the bad stuff, you'll have a very comfortable, but probably uninspiring life because you'll never push yourself out of that comfort zone and we always actually and this is why it's helpful having another person i guess like when you are in those down times actually embracing it and saying if we're aiming for something pretty huge here we're not going to get that we're not going to get to the point we want to get to without going through a lot of shit basically and i always right. think that that's that's at the time when a lot of people do give up and therefore that's the time when we need to push on even further because that's the time when most people give up. I don't, does that mm -hmm. resonate with you at all? Yeah, no, that's, that's spot on. I, I would say that um, you never lose unless you make the decision to stop yourself. And so basically, I mean, the way I look at the game of business and the game of entrepreneurship is if you give yourself long enough time to survive and to make your chances, like literally everything you do is like little bets, right? Like, oh, you have a new product. You know, that's a little bet. Like, hopefully it does well, but you, you don't know. You don't know for sure. Um, but So you make these little bets, but then one of those is going to take off. And so when that happens, you got to really, you know, treasure that and 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 kind of ride that for a little while. But then eventually that product has its own life cycle and it will die down. And so you got to keep making these little bets. And um, I think it's important to keep going when you think, like basically like you, you have to keep going and give yourself enough opportunities to succeed. And if you quit before you have enough bets out there, like you just never know like what could have been something that you just gave up maybe a month or two earlier, you know, you just never know. So my whole thing is just kind of, you know, survive the longest and good things will happen. 
Amazing. Yeah. No, we're, we're going through like that phase at the moment where we're trying to grow a lot and grow quickly. And with that, it's exciting, but there's so much stuff you have to deal with outside of that. And it is funny because you, if you look at it from the outside, people just see products launching, social media posts and everything. And I guess they don't really know what, you know, all the stuff that's going in and going on the inside. Um, out of interest, like how, like you moving into entrepreneurship, but in this particular area, how did that land with your like family and friends? Were they all like completely understanding or were they like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, you got to remember, I was at a cryptocurrency company in 2014 as a software engineer, right? Yeah. And so in Silicon Valley, right? So when I left, I mean, people were, people thought I was crazy, right? My colleagues, they were literally like, you know, they're, they're like on their computers, like voting away. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go sell knives online. <laughs> like it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so I have to get over that for sure. Um, I think the biggest thing I would say that actually keeps people back is not being able to shed that identity. And so like you were a salesperson before you said, and when you're making a transition to a new opportunity or a new thing, like a new company that you start, like, of course, people are going to judge you. People are, are going to talk behind your back. People are going to be like, is he really doing that? Like, what's he thinking, right? They're going to say all of that. And that's like normal. I mean, that's like what you should expect to happen. But ultimately, you have to get through that and you have to shed that identity. The faster you shed that identity, the faster your development as a new business owner or entrepreneur is going to be. And so, yeah, I mean... I. That's the only thing that for new entrepreneurs, like really think about, um, it's going to be hard because, you know, you're in a good spot already inherently because you're going to be paid a good salary or whatever, but then you have to leave that spot and go from nothing, right? And build it up again. And so that's, of course, it's difficult and no one wants to do it. But then, when you do it, like when you put in five, 10 years, like you'll be way outer of that than you've ever been working at this company right so that's kind of the yeah yeah no definitely well up until very recently and it probably still happens now we still get some of our friends and even i I think i had my sister last year like just saying oh you know how's it going with the watch box thing uh (laughs) it's just like um i don't think i guess if you're not like into edc and whatnot you don't realize like how big the market is but it's interesting that like they're just they almost just saw it as like a little hobby type thing on on Mm -hmm. the side but yeah I, i think we get a lot of satisfaction out of just kind of being under the radar a little bit just getting on with our thing and then people realizing that it's oh wow it's actually actually a business that you're doing um what was your vision for the brand at the beginning when you started? If you indeed did have one, I think maybe some people do start without one and then they're like, wow, I probably need a vision. And then what's your vision today and how has that evolved? Yeah. So from the beginning, I knew that we had to be community oriented. So that was a core pillar. We wanted to have a fantastic customer experience. And so that was another core pillar. And then we also wanted to be kind of like on the cutting edge or like be the cool kid on the block, so to say. And so those three were our core pillars of uh, what we were trying to achieve. And, you know, it's not easy to quantify these things, but I think that these pillars are things where, you know, if you 
improve them. And people love that. But like, basically, these, these are things that you can always strive to be better at. There's no like destination for them, right? So yeah, so those are kind of the, the, the things that we focused on early on. And it still is, I would say. But I guess the, the way that we do it is slightly different because in the beginning, you know, there weren't any EDC shops. And so just by having some, you know, hard to get EDC gear, we were able to stand out. But now the market is shifting. And so we have to do like cooler projects and, and collaborate with cooler brands. And so that's kind of how we're fulfilling our, our, our pillars there. But those three things are still, you know, still in play today. So... Awesome. And that actually leads me on to the next question about community. And I was actually going to ask you if that was a conscious decision at the start. You've already answered that. But what surprised you most about focusing on that? Because we we decided to focus on it from the beginning, but then that has evolved. And so much for me has has surprised me about the, the benefits of it, not just as a business, but also the kind of joy we get out of working with our community and feeling more connected with them um for you what do your community like mean to you and like what benefits do you think that has given your your business and your brand so i think that because the eec industry is so community focused that it's important to tap into that because i think that it, it would almost be awkward if there wasn't a community aspect to everyday carry. And so we definitely realized that and wanted to double down on that aspect. And then I think just generally bringing people together, obviously, and making sure that people are being treated fairly. So, I mean, there's a lot to community, but ultimately it's about helping others, you know, serving others and providing value that benefits that entire community as a whole versus, you know, us telling everyone like, Hey, this is what you need to buy. Like it's more of an effort of like, we get feedback, you know, we ask questions, Hey, what do you want to see? Like, it's all about like making sure that what we do is reflective of what our community wants. And so that's like a really positive loop because we do something for the community. They love it. And then they come buy our stuff. And then it's like a loop where it's like, okay, we keep doing that. And then you got this like crazy flywheel going. And so that's kind of what, for me, what community means. Yeah. Awesome. And how do you, and again, this is more kind of wondering myself, like how do you manage to balance work, your business, your passion for the brand, which must take up so much of your headspace and then outside of that like family life like your personal life yeah. maybe personal goals uh is that kind of like a a constant battle to strike that balance yeah so the way i look at this is is that oh well, first of all i'm like lucky that business is something that i'm like super passionate about and so literally like all day i'm thinking about business and so Honestly, like when we go on vacation, like I'm thinking about business. Like when we sit down at a restaurant, you know, in in a, like a foreign country, I'm thinking like, oh, okay, like this operations of this restaurant could be improved by doing X, Y, and Z. Like I'm, I'm like thinking about that, and like I, I just can't help it. Like it's just like in my blood, right? So it's something that just comes naturally to me, and um, I love it. But Sometimes I just have to kind of uh, make sure that I don't go overboard, like with, with my wife. Like sometimes I feel like, you know, we're on vacation. Like we shouldn't, I shouldn't talk about business, right? So it's a little bit of like me trying to, I should, you know, not 
bring too much of my business ideas and thoughts in, into the space that we're in. But for me, I, honestly, it's just part of who I am and what I love to do. So it doesn't really feel like work. Although, I mean, it's sometimes, you know, the way that I look at it is if you get burned out, it's because you don't get enough wins. So it's not that you're overworking yourself. It's not because you don't see enough wins. And so that way of looking at it has really changed the way I look at it. So basically, I want to celebrate any small wins that I have because that's what I'll keep you going. Mm. And so even if you're working a lot, if you're getting these wins, that kind of fuels you. It's like you use it as motivation. And so you won't get burnt out. You'll actually like feel really motivated. So yeah, that's kind of how, how I keep going. Yeah, that's a really good point. We often talk about the fact that we kind of don't stop. We kind of dwell on the the negatives a little bit longer than we should do. And then with the wins that come up, we we acknowledge them and then we move on super quickly. So yeah, I think actually even the small wins, celebrating those, that, that'd be good. And how do you celebrate those? Is that just like a, you know, you'll allow yourself to do something or you'll celebrate it with your team? Yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll call them out and say, hey, you know, awesome job. Like, this is amazing. We did X, Y, and Z. And yeah, I mean, I'll try to put it into perspective, like what we're doing. And I'll, I'll send a, you know, a heartfelt note mm. to whoever is responsible for bringing that product together. And then, yeah, I mean, we would move on to, to the next thing. But it's important to stop and recognize that win and then kind of see how that win is in the context of our company, like how monumental that might be and then once that's recognized and kind of like felt then we can move on hey phil here co-founder of home and hadfield just interrupting the episode to let you know about something truly special to us community is a huge part of everything we do and so we've created a facebook group where we share our newest ideas and get feedback from you our customers to make sure we're developing products that you actually want to see in return we give away free products regularly we're probably giving away a free product right now and huge discounts of up to 35% on all product launches. Whilst this began as something fairly simple, it's grown into an amazing community of like-minded people. And so if this sounds like something you could be interested in, I've left the link to the group below in the description. So come join us. It's free and you never know, you might enjoy yourself. Okay, back to what you came here for, the episode. So look, I'm going to get into the uh, our audience's questions. I've been hogging too much of your time myself. So, um, so someone's actually asked, and this is an interesting question: When will an urban EDC app be launched to give early access to members? Is that something you're working on? Is that something you're releasing? So, a specific mobile app? Is that what they're asking? Yeah, I think I think so. And I, I was actually listening to a podcast the other day where a company, a company called Obvi, actually in, uh, invest in their own community quite a lot. They have their own app, and I thought it was really interesting. And I, it was one of the many things that I spoke to Ian about. And I was like, we need to do this, and then kind of gone to the bottom of the pile. But is that something you've considered doing? So we have early access, okay. and it's for our very loyal customers. And okay. so. Right now, the threshold is if you've spent $5,000 with us, then you get early access. And to be honest, there's a lot of people in that tier. So it's like, it might seem like a crazy amount, but actually it's, people achieve it pretty easily, which is crazy to think about. But um, if you hit $5,000 in lifetime spend with us, then you get 24 hour early access. Although it doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to get whatever you want. So we do save at a minimum 50% of all inventory for the general release. And so we do that just to protect, you know, people from 
just lashing out at us and being like, hey, you must have sold it all out, whatever, right? So we, we save at a minimum 50% of all inventory for the general public. And then we also have, this is a new thing that ties in with community, but we launched a community called Yamato Club. And this club gets, uh, there's a one, there's two tiers in it. There's a lower tier, which is $9 a month, and then a higher tier, which is $99 a month. And the higher tier gets three hours early access to each gear drop. Wow. And so those are a couple of ways of getting early access to the drops. Um, the Amato Club is pretty new. And so we are always taking feedback and kind of implementing them into what we're doing. But so far, people are digging it. And yeah, you know, it's been really fun building up this, like, it's a paid membership community for EDC gear lovers. And so honestly, I think it's the first first of its kind, like a paid membership. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm like really excited to see where that goes. Yeah. Do, do you guys have a target on how many drops you do per year, per month? And is there... I know it's obviously always a limited amount. Is it always the same exact number of units or does it vary depending on the, the collaboration? Um, it depends on the collaboration. A lot of times it will depend on obviously like material supply. Um, it depends on how many we can allocate from the makers. In terms of the gear frequency, it's always on Wednesdays. So Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific is always going to be the gear drop. And we do that deliberately because we're actually trying to train our our customers that hey it's wednesday at 12 i better get on the computer and it actually it's 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 funny because people started like setting alarms and stuff <laughs> for these gear drops and like they are yeah they're on it i mean it's, it's, we see a huge spike and a lot of things sell out within seconds and uh, yeah it's always fun to kind of see the website traffic around that time oh yeah i mean how far ahead do you schedule those in are you kind of like three months out six months out or like yeah how far ahead do you have to do that well we always plan as much as we can but you know it's hard to plan things with shipping delays and all that stuff so what what will happen is we'll always like have an idea of what will be in a drop but then we'll kind of tinker it up until the last minute and you know if a product doesn't need new photos for example it's like a restock then we'll just plug it right into the drop itself and so it's not a perfect um you know science but it's it's you know seeing whether this week or next week needs a little bit more of a boost because we always try to have like a flagship like exciting products each week that everyone wants to go for because we don't want to have a week where it's a little bit like of a dud week and so we always try to have that that like go-to flagship product each week so that gets people really excited um a lot of people asking about the so what led to the signature motif being an i sagaya is that how you pronounce it yeah 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 what led to that decision i'd say i think there was four questions mentioning this motif Yeah, no, this this is a great question. So to be honest, it was it was accidental. And so what happened was we were experimenting with different patterns because we wanted to have a pattern of our own to be able to work with makers and they would engrave this pattern for us on on these projects. And so we were looking for a pattern and there were a lot of options. We just thought like the waves were such a it's a simple motif. And it symbolizes, you know, good fortune and good luck. It, it had a lot of great meaning behind it. 
And also, I really love the slightly Japanese influence of what we do. And I don't know, it just kind of fit, fit the aesthetic in really nicely. And so once we started using that pattern, I mean, obviously, like, if we use that pattern, and it was like, no one liked it, and no one was buying it, then we wouldn't use that pattern. But people really love that pattern. And so we just kept going with it. And to the point where we actually worked with another designer, and he like made a pattern based on that pattern. And so we called it modern Segeha. And so it's, it's just been really interesting to see how that pattern has evolved over time. But we just kind of stumbled on it initially accidentally. And now it's, it's honestly, it's so fun to see it's like recognizable for, like for our brand. And so when people see it, they're like, Oh, are you doing an Urban EDC collab? Like it's like a, it's just funny to, to see that because it's, uh, you know, it's an old Japanese ancient motif, but people associate that planner with us. And so that's been really cool to see. Yeah, that definitely. Well, it certainly was a popular question. So um, what goes through, what's the decision-making process when you're looking at working with designers or companies? Yeah, what goes through that process? And are you are you very much involved in every part of like, that process and the decision-making behind that? These are some really good questions. So, um, <laughs> good. So the decision-making for just, I guess, smaller purchases you know, let's say restocks or smaller quantity EDC gear, those are done by our general manager, Sean. And so Sean does a great job. And for the larger projects that are a little more capital intensive, we definitely discuss it as a team. And there's a little bit more of a marketing push behind it in terms of like, okay, what do we need to do to make sure people see this project? You know, there's a lot of moving pieces to these larger projects. And so those get kind of bubbled up to the rest of the team. And I'm, I'm part of that decision making process too. But ultimately, you know, I, I do want the team to be able to make decisions on their own. Like I want to enable them to do that. And so I've been pushing a lot of decision making down to them. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it really has to do with the level of magnitude of how much, uh, how big that project is, whether or not I'm, I'm heavily involved or I'm not that involved. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it's really, as a business owner trying to obviously still have an influence, but remove yourself from the process enough that actually empowers other people and the business can still grow. Um, mm-hmm. It's an interesting balance to strike. Um, can you, I don't know whether you can, but again, quite a few people asking about this. Can you share any upcoming ideas or novelties, anything that's coming up that you can share that you're particularly excited about or is it all under wraps? Well, um, we have more production knives that are in the works with some amazing designers, uh, which I won't share yet, but they're coming. And we're also working with some really large YouTubers, like content creators, on their own versions of some of the stuff that we're doing. So we actually launched, we did our first one with um, Accessorize Me with Vincent. And um, so we had the Baby Barlow, which is designed by Justin Lundquist. And it's a very popular night for us. And Vincent loved that design. And he's always doing the all blackout, you know, pocket them style videos. And so he decided to do an all blackout baby Barlow. And that one was, it's very, very successful. And so we are actually taking that model. And, uh, you know, we have another one coming up with a YouTube channel that has, I think it's got 20 million subscribers. Wow. Um, they easily get, you know, a million views a video 
and I won't reveal them because we haven't launched yet, but um, they should, yeah, that one's going to be, I'm really excited for that one. Um, we are also working on a project and this one I really can't talk about because it's very early stage, but this one is going to be a good one. I, I think we might actually create a separate brand for this. Wow. And so it'll be, you know, managed by the Airbnb DC team, but it'll have its own separate website, uh, its own separate kind of branding. And so that one I, I'm really excited about, but it's still early stage. So prototyping stuff is being done now. I'll just leave it at that. We need to get you back. We need to get you back on when, <laughs> when this is like actually happening. Cause I'm, uh, I'm like, what could that be? And yeah. what is that YouTube channel? Uh, but no, I think you've, uh, you've teased enough there to get people very interested. Um, so someone's asked around your network of designers. How have you built such a, like a vast network of designers and how do you maintain those relationships? Yeah. So you got to remember when I first started going back to that conversation, everyone was saying no. Right. And so it's all about, you got to build relationships one at a time. And it's, it's really about, uh, you know, you leverage one relationship and then you get introduced to two or three more. Right. So we are now in, in a very fortunate position where I think that we could probably work with 95% of designers out there. And so in the very beginning though, like we were nobody. And so we had to kind of like pitch around a little bit. And, um, you know, once we got one designer, we can be like, Hey, look, look what we did with him. Mm. You want to do that with us. And so we leveraged that one project into the next one and then that one into the next one. And then, um, you know, we had a, a pretty big successful project with the F5.5 with the Esper. And so that one really carried us to another level. And now I think that we, we could pre pretty much reach any designer that we wanted to uh, at this point and but that took a that took a long time of relationship building and um you know it's not it's not easy to do and there's no there are no shortcuts for that you just have to work your work your way through these relationships mm. um and but they have to trust you too right it's like they're putting their name on a product and so they have to trust that you're going to deliver you're not going to mess up right so that takes a lot of time to be able to prove that you can do it and so, yeah, I mean, it just takes time. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I, I think, you know, what we were talking about earlier, like if, if it was so easy to do, then everyone would do it, right? So you've just got to keep, keep doing it, have the vision of what you're doing, believing that that is uh, worth striving for, worth being rejected, and then keep going every day and turning up every day. Um, yeah, what you've managed to do in that respect, it, mu it must feel so good now to be, to have so many yeses when you had so many noes at the beginning. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally true. Yeah. And you know, we get a lot of people coming to us now and it's hard because we want to work with a lot of designers that are just starting out. Um, but we also want to make sure that, you know, we're serving our customers with the products that they absolutely desire. Right. And I'm not saying that these new designers are, you know, not talented or whatever, but we just, we need to keep tabs on our own customers as well and so it's it's been challenging because there's a lot of people that want to work with us and we want to work with them too but it's not as simple as okay let's let's do a deal because we have to listen to our customers going back to that whole feedback loop thing like we always get feedback from our customers and make sure that we bring in stuff that they want and so we're always also going after 
the, the larger makers that are just outside of our reach. And so we don't want to be complacent and say, okay, let's just work with whoever is coming in inbound. Like, no, we got to do outbound and, and we got to go get the people that, I mean, at this point, the makers, now we're actually expanding beyond makers and we're trying to reach out to content creators. You know, we're reaching out to bigger brands that might, you know, that are, are bigger than us or, or tapping into a market that's, you know, that we're not a part of yet. And so that's kind of the next growth phase for us is, is stepping outside of the EDC, the night realm and kind of getting into more of these like different interest groups. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that it's been fun, but it's also obviously challenging sometimes. Someone has asked. I'd be curious about their overall design philosophy. Everything feels like it belongs together, which is a big compliment. Um, what What is their process for designing a, cle- a cohesive selection? Yeah, no, this is awesome. Um, it has to match an aesthetic that we we want. And to be honest, I think a lot of it has to do with the way we present the items. And so we present all the items like they're, pieces of artwork displayed at a museum. Like that's the feeling that we want with the website. That's the feeling we want when they're browsing through. And so when you put it cohesively in that kind of environment, I wouldn't say it's easy to make it feel that way, but it's definitely a lot easier, you know, if you brought in a whole bunch of the random stuff and, but then you put them into that environment, I think it was maybe 50% of the way there in terms of like the feel of it. But we definitely do look at the products themselves and make sure that, um, you know, they're simple, but sophisticated. And so we don't want to go too crazy, but they've got to be elegant and essentially a little bit more like a gentleman type feel to it. So yeah, that's kind of how it goes. Awesome. And so will you be having more Koenig drops this summer? (laughs) Uh, Yes, we we will. But it's it's very unpredictable uh, when we get these in. Uh, these, yeah, I mean, they, they have a lot of orders in, in their books and we just get them when we can. And so no guarantees when they will be. So no guarantees that they'll come this summer even, but I mean, we will get more of them. I just, we just don't know when. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, very specific question and don't know whether this is in the works or not, but do you ever have any plans to do a collab with something obscene company? I think we talk to them uh i mean nothing is is outside the realm you know if our audience wants it if our customer base is 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 wanting it then yeah we will definitely try to make something happen so it's a it's a balancing game of uh what what our customers want and then what kind of makes sense with our vision of the company and direction that we're going and so if it fits both of those then 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 yeah i mean sure um how and this is it yeah i actually find this quite interesting like how often do you so when you're doing a collaboration, what would you say the percentage is in that collaboration of like who gets to dictate kind of like the style, uh, the design itself, you know, when you're working with a brand, is it you guys more kind of like saying, this is what we want, this is the idea, go ahead and do it? Or is there really that like collaborative feel between the two and it kind of is a, a 50-50 merging of minds between two design teams? Yeah, no, this is this is a good question. So it's... It really depends on the designer. And so someone like some designers are very particular about their design. And that's like fantastic because they obsess over every single little detail. 
And so we know that it's it's pretty much like a masterpiece. Like we, there's not much that we need to add or or you know whatever. You can just feel it like it's it's a masterpiece. And so we ju- we just leave it as is. Um, there's sometimes when the designers are really creative, just overall design, but then there could be slight tweaks to make it a little bit better. And so we offer that as an option and it's on them. They can say, no, I don't like that or whatever. But most of the time they'll actually tell us, Hey, you've seen a lot of knives. Like you, you handle a lot of them. Like you, you might know it better than me. Like, what do you think? And so we'll offer, you know, our, I guess our advice or, or just kind of design suggestions. And I say like most of the time they will say, Oh yeah, you're right. That, that is, you know, that addition is definitely an improvement. So let's go with that. So it depends on the designer. Yeah. No, I thought, I thought that would be the case. Um, if you could have any item in your pockets other than a phone or ID, what would it be? Um, any item. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's gotta be a pocket knife. Okay. Um, even though I probably use it way less than like I have, a, I carry a pen too. And uh, I carry a Rexford right with me, which is a multi-tool. Yeah. And th- that's way more useful, but I don't know. It's just something about the knife just kind of, it just feels good to have. Any particular um, maker that you have a preference towards? Is there like um, one that's got a special place in, in, in your heart that you've carried for a long time? Uh, well, I just carry a lot of the, the prototypes that we do with the, our production knives. So I have a whole bunch of prototypes that, to be honest, they're not fi- like polished final versions of them. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think that's kind of what makes them special. So I, I carry like prototypes that are a little bit rough on the edges. But, um, you know, it's all about the story. So I, I love just carrying something and be like, you know, at a party or something, be like, hey, like, you know, like this is been years in the making like we literally like work with designer to make this and like so it's like cool to have that kind of story too so um you know it's funny also it's like each pair of my pants has a knight already like in there <laughs> and so when i like when i like change pants like i i'm oh yeah this is what i'm carrying today so it's oh, kind right. of like a yeah that's that's, that's amazing yeah. uh, okay uh how does your wife react to that is that is that cool that there's just always there's always a, a knife just there <laughs> I think she's used to it at this point. And to be honest, she probably prefers that versus having like my entire desk filled with knives. So good point. It's almost like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Someone's asked, what's your top five carry? Uh, Or like, what would be, yeah, your must have carry. Must have carry. This is like just everyday use or more of a collective thing. I think let's do both. Yeah. Kind of like what's, what's there on a day-to-day basis, you know, you must have on you, you must have part of it. And then what's your, I guess, more creative side that's something you're collecting. Uh, well, I, so the wallet that I'm carrying is actually a wallet that I designed and I carry that out. I, I've carried it. This is the prototype that I'm carrying uh-huh. and um, I've had it for six years now, seven years. And the thing that I'm carrying with it because it carries two pieces of gear is, is a pen, like a tiny little pen and then a Rexford rut. And the rut has a lot of functionality, like bottle opener, you know, it's got the screwdriver thing, pry bar. So I would say that's kind of a core piece just cause it's gotten me out of a lot of, uh, you know, random situations. <laughs> um, and so that's that in terms of like what I would really love to have, um, to be honest, I'm pretty happy with the collection that I have now. Um, it's 
it's evolved, but it's, you know, when you handle so many knives after a certain point, you just, it's not about the item itself. It's about the stories and like the maker behind the product. And so that is more carries more meaning to me at this point than, you know, trying to chase after like some crazy $2,000, $3,000 knife. And so I would say that honestly, it's like the production knives that we've done that are being to see that carries a lot of like, I guess, meaning for me personally. So that's kind of how, how that goes. Awesome. And I think the last last question really uh, well someone's actually asked how did your passion for, I know you can't I think you kind of alluded to it earlier how did your passion for EDC start because it was pre 2015 yeah when when actually was that and like how how did that start yeah so I've always been interested in gear for a long time I would say let's say like since I was 20 but it's what's funny is I wasn't interested in knives. And I launched for BDC with no knives. And so this is a part, this is a little known fact, but there were no knives on our BDC at one point. And the feedback that we got was, Hey, you're an EDC shop. You have to have knives on them. And so I was like, all right, point taken. So that's when we started introducing some, some more knives. And now it's like 90% of our, of our sales. And so that was a good move, but I wasn't into knives really uh, when I launched the shop, but then you know, when I started bringing them in, I just, I mean, it's, it's not even about like the functionality. It's about the design of it. Like, like how a designer chose to, to put, you know, whatever, like jumping or whatever, like whatever the feature of a knife is, like why they decided to do it that way versus this way. Like this is the kind of decision making that I find fascinating. And so when I started looking at it as pieces of design art, then it really opened up you know, my world to knives and I really started getting deeper into that. And now it's like, you know, core part of core part of who I am. So Yeah. Now you've opened Pandora's box and there's there's no yeah. there's no there's no going back. <laughs> um what do you believe is the cause of the EDC craze of the last five to seven years? Um I think there's a couple of things. One is that it's become easier to set up a shop and then sell things online. So I think that's definitely one because that democratizes anybody that has a garage or machine, they can just start making stuff and just sell it. So I think that's, that's a big one. Uh, I'd say the community has definitely grown. And so I'm not sure why that community has grown for the last five to 10 years, but, um, cause I think it basically used to be only knives. And so there was like an underground, like big knife scene. And, and the knife shows, but then like all these like little, you know, EDC type products start popping up. And I'm not sure why that trend has grown, but it has. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's awesome to see what's, what's the, what the best, best case scenario is like people who are collectors, they actually end up be- becoming the makers themselves. Hmm. And so I've seen that several times and it's so fun to see them growing their own brand after having been a collector for a long time and so it's like a full circle type thing and uh, i love seeing things like that 
Awesome. Uh, look, thank you so much. I mean, I could personally speak to you all day and ask you so many questions about your, your business, the brand. Um, but yeah, no, I'm conscious of, of time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing just your story, but then answering everyone's questions. I think you've just built an amazing brand and you're evolving, you're moving forward. So yeah, really inspirational for us. And uh, yeah, I'm sure all your fans out there is really uh, cool to hear your story as well. No, no, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Phil. It's been a blast. I always, uh, you know, I love walking down memory lane and, and bringing these, uh, you know, stories up. So, no, thank you so much for having me. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening. Really means the world to us. And if you would like to show us any extra support so we can keep this podcast going, please follow, subscribe. And if you have any extra time, leave us a review. It really would mean the world to us. Thank you so much.